Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Daily Friends Show. I'm your host, Nicholas Larimer, and today I'm joined by Sarah Gon. Sarah, how are you doing? Well, thanks. I think we actually have cloudier weather than Cape Town. Amazing. Ah, amazing stuff. Uh, and we are also joined today by Mr. Marius Ritt. Marius, how are you? How's it, Nick? How's it, Sarah? How's it? So let's start off with our first story today, and this is one that actually emerged from social media. Uh, it was a video which is um, which showed a group of people who, uh, at the time, it was unclear exactly who they might be, although it was claimed that they were VIP protection officers um, for a senior government official. It's since been confirmed that they, in fact, are uh, beating a number of people on the side of the road <clears throat> on the N1 highway. Um, there's not much context as to how this sort of came about in the video, but uh, the, the, the VIP protection officers are seen being extremely rough with a number of people who are sort of lying on the ground, helpless, having their heads stamped on, being kicked in the side. Um, the IRR put out a statement condemning the recent incident, uh, saying that, regrettably, such displays of irrational state violence are not surprising to many South Africans. The country has witnessed with minimal accountability the tragic deaths of hundreds of individuals in police custody, as well as the killing in public of people such as Collins Causa and Pietrus Michels. Um, it has since been confirmed that the officers were part of Deputy President Paul Mashatile's VIP protection unit. Uh, Paul Mashatile issued a statement saying that they were his his uh, his protection officers and said, quote, the Deputy President has become aware of the unfortunate incident involving members of the SA Police Service who are attached to his protection detail and civilians, which occurred in Johannesburg over the weekend. The Deputy President abhors any unnecessary use of force, particularly against unarmed civilians. The National Police Commissioner has promised a thorough investigation articulated uh, the conduct of expected of police officers very well. Mashatila has appealed to the public to give police, quote, the necessary space to do the investigation. And he said that he has full confidence in Becky Clearly to investigate the situation. Um, Marius, should we uh, give the police a chance here? What's your view on this? Yeah, I think, I mean, they need to be investigated. And I think the police are one of the arms that need to do the investigating. Uh, but I think, obviously, pressure has to remain on the police and make sure that. You know, the people who did this, they need to be brought to book. Because what happened, I mean, it was absolutely disgusting. Uh, you know, that you see, I think there were three guys there getting attacked. And the one guy looks like he's just been knocked out. And he's lying there, not doing anything. He's passed out always in so much pain. He's just lying there. And he gets kicked in the side by one guy. Another guy stamps on his head. So even even if, let, let's assume for argument's sake, that these guys were posing a threat to whoever was in this vehicle. Let's say they'd been driving dangerously and trying to run out running off the road. Let's, let's just, for argument's sake, so that was the case. But now they've been pulled over, they're not a threat anymore, and they get attacked like that. That, if, that is assault with intent to do grievous bodily harm. That, that is, you know, basically the worst thing you can do to a person except for murder or rape them. And, you know, somebody, in, a defense person was kicked like that and just shows you the impunity that uh, people operate with in this country. And unfortunately, we, if, if we just got a list of uh, people who were killed by the security forces or the police in the last year or two, and we just read out those names. You'd probably be sitting here for three hours. 
while we go through people's names who were killed for no reason by the police and so on. I mean, you mentioned Collins Causa, you know, and, uh, you know, that's, I, I think that's kind of, um, he epitomizes the state of this country. I mean, he was killed for doing nothing wrong during the lockdown. You know, he was drinking a beer, which is not even illegal. You couldn't buy a beer. But even if he had bought a beer, you, this shouldn't be a capital offense. And when he was killed, nobody lost their job for it. And Sir Ramaphosa was asked about it. Ramaphosa, I couldn't even name, him, uh, name his name. I couldn't say, geez, like, it's a terrible thing that happened to Collins Causa. All he said was, our guys were a bit over-enthusiastic. And I think it also, that shows exactly what the state thinks about the people that they govern. So Paul Mashatile has claimed that he was not in the convoy at the time, um, which then removes any possible justification that the, that the VIP protection service might claim here, uh, which is if they claim they were, they can't even claim apparently then that they were protecting anyone um, because they're, you know, the person they're supposed to protect was not there. So horrifying. Um, and this is not the first time that we've heard stories or seen evidence of VIP protection officers behaving appallingly. Um, I know there have been stories of motorists being attacked for having, you know, like uh, giving the finger to protective officers to, to VIP blue light convoys. Um, there was a story once, and I can't remember whether it was proven or not, but that the protection officers had shot at another motorist for not getting out of the way of a blue light convoy. Just utter madness. Uh, you know, this uh, this kind of footage, Sarah, it does give one echoes of apartheid security police beating people. Actually, it, it's it's you, you know what it, it really does is I think we all truly loathe the Blue Light Brigade. They are way too large for the people they are protecting. There are, there are too many of them. I think that, I think if somebody said, where should we put these these VIP guys in jail, and we would say with the paedophiles, um, because they they are just they they remind one of sort of egregious power, in, which is undeserving. Um, I mean, I think that alone would no one no one will actually pay attention to whatever they allege the guys that they beat up did that justify their activity. Um, the other, th I mean, there's the, 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 there's an element that also says, you know, in this day and age, if you park all over the road to beat people up, somebody's going to film it. So very smart. And the other was, I don't know if you saw the automatic weapons they were carrying. I mean, whoever they were beating up had no chance against them for, for whatever they did or didn't do. Um, no, they've got to look, the police should be able to wrap this up fairly quickly. Um, you know, the evidence is there. The number plates are there. The, the, the Presumably they'll be able to interview the Victims? Uh, uh, no, no. It's the, it's it's the, it's the big man politics mixed with toxic, toxic masculinity, and it's all rather revolting. And I think the rest of us, you, know, I think we actually have a prejudice towards the guys who who perform this function. No, it's and and they really don't deserve the benefit of the doubt, as as we've seen in these previous cases. There've been so many times when people in law enforcement have gotten away with treating people appallingly and abusing their rights and hurting them uh, with very little accountability. And I think it's extremely important that media, civil society, the public holds the government to account for this one and doesn't let the story go away. Because my cynical mind tells me that there's going to be asking for calm, there's going to be promises of investigations, and then a little bit like what happened in the Commons Causa case, the thing will sort of 
die. drift away like mist and uh no one's no one will be uh, named responsible so it's very important that the names of all of the police of the officers involved in this i think is revealed publicly and that journalists keep an eye on it to to, to keep track of it uh just total sort of medieval aristocracy beating up the peasantry kind of vibes here it's just disgusting and not worthy of a republic where citizens are free Maris, any final thoughts uh no just yeah i mean i think uh, you guys are spot on and i think uh it's the way the government uh, when collins Cosa died it was at the same time when george floyd died and i remember the government released these statements about BLM and you know the South African government is behind Black Lives Matter. The South African police kill more people per capita than the US or the Brazilian police, who are generally thought of as being the most violent police forces in the world. And the South African police kills more people on a per capita basis than all those police services or police forces. Uh, so it just shows you what. Yeah, I mean we have a big problem with the, the, this kind of thing in South Africa. I mean it's very. I mean it's a. It's not an easily solvable issue, and we all know that there's very big uh, issues with crime and stuff in South Africa. But I think the police simply aren't uh, cut out for the job of, uh, you know, actually managing crime in South Africa. And as I said, it goes down. There's some very complex reasons for that. But I mean, I don't think there's anybody who's even trying to fix the issues that come with that kind of thing in South Africa. So it's all quite depressing. And yeah, I, t I hope that these guys do get brought to book and you know get kicked out the police and but there's got a lot of reforms got to happen here i mean the fact that they thought they could treat other people like this is already telling you something and no matter what those guys did you know kicking them on the ground like that that is assault there's no doubt in my mind you know even if those guys had committed the crime you know that's not what you do right. to somebody who's lying on the ground and not not posing any threat to anybody yeah even if they were i don't know and i and i doubt this but even if they were some kind of assassins they had been disarmed they were on the ground <laughs> You don't stamp on someone's head. Um, but anyway. So obviously we're going to keep an eye on that. And hopefully, as I said, it doesn't disappear from the mainstream media. Um, right. Let's go on to, I think, uh, kind of a bit of a general discussion on the state of the opposition uh, in the country. So let's start off with by-elections. There were a bunch of by-elections last week. We made fun of a particular EFF candidate for not getting a single vote in a, in a ward in Middleburg, which was... It's just kind of very low effort, I thought, because um, it means he didn't even vote for himself. But, uh, uh, Marius, um, do you just want to run us through some of the results of those by-elections last week? Most of them weren't that important. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, just just to uh, uh, one thing, um, I never defend the EFF. I mean, this is, you must record this. Uh, but to be fair to the chap in the EFF, you didn't get single votes. I believe that you don't necessarily have to live in a ward where you stand. You just have to live in the same municipality. So but it still means this guy didn't manage to persuade even one person. I mean, I don't, don't know how much campaigning think, he could have done or if he put up any posters or anything. Yeah, you'd think you know, if the EFF had a, had, a, had a branch there that they would at least have one member who could have voted for him, even if he wasn't. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You'd throw one guy. So, but yeah, all, um, there was pretty much... Uh, there, uh, there were probably... Two uh, wards where, or two by-elections where some interesting stuff. One was in uh, Joburg, ward um, I can't remember which ward it was exactly, but it's in Ennerdale, which is generally uh, was a sort of a, uh, what you call a colored, colored ward, mainly, mainly colored people over there. The PA won the ward on uh, last week. He took it from the ANC, and they got nearly 50% of the vote uh, on 
Wednesday. So shows that the PA PA is definitely making inroads around the country. The PA now has got nine seats on the Joburg City Council, up from eight. And then there were three by-elections in uh, in Kosi Langibelele. I think that's what I said. It's basically escort. I think I'm correct. They were IFP held seats. They were uh, um, there had to be by-elections because the IFP kicked out a couple of councillors for apparently being bribed by the NC and going to vote against an IFP mayor, so all these kind of shenanigans. But what was interesting there, the IFP held on to two of the seats, but lost one to the ANC. So uh, while the, it has seemed that um, the ANC has been kind of getting hammered in uh, KwaZulu-Natal, you know, just by, basically across the board, they've been getting, you know, every single by-election they've been losing to IFP or doing very badly. There's one where the ANC... Didn't like they did a right, and so they took it uh, took a ward off the IFP. So you know maybe maybe the NC's bench just kind of staunched the bleeding in KwaZulu Natal, but I'm not too sure. Well, so, every, yeah. every other by election on the same day had the the IFP increase their majority. It was just one particular ward, right, where they went backwards. Yeah, and I mean where they did increase the majority, there was like also pretty small. There wasn't you know weren't right. these landslide kind of things that would went up by like one or two percentage points. And then the DA held on to four wards, but in kind of Places that you'd expect them to was, uh, you know, pretty safe places. I mean, in that ward where the EFF guy didn't get a single vote, the uh, DA got over ninety percent of the votes. There was another ward in Cape Town where DA also got over ninety percent of the votes. So they didn't really face much opposition in those places. But I mean, if you get more than ninety percent, that's what the kind of numbers that the NC racks up in rural Eastern Cape and so on. You know, or you know what the governing party in the uh, in North Korea gets. So it's uh, <laughs> quite interesting sometimes. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm sure the deer will love will love that comparison. Um, <laughs> the uh, so so I'm, I've been thinking a little bit about by elections recently, and I'm sort of starting to slide into the camp of they're useful but not that useful for kind of predicting elections, uh, because I think what's happened in in previous years in South Africa there was only basically one party which was very good at fighting by elections, and that was the DA. Uh, and so they often outperformed when it came to by-elections. And I think actually to a certain degree, they may have lost that edge a bit. Uh, I think some of the smaller parties like the PA have proven that they are very good at fighting by-elections. Um, and I also think that often, you know, these things are governed by local candidates and stuff far more than is recognized. Uh, a lot of these wards have very complicated histories where someone defected to someone or the last councillor was caught you know, drunk with prostitutes and this, or just this always, there's often like a crazy local story that doesn't get into the media. And so I wonder how much, um, how, how, how indicative of trends some of these are. Um, but we, we, we shall see. Uh, uh, I'd love to see more national polling. No, yeah, um, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Just uh, hmm. as I said before, I think comparing like a by-election and a national poll, national poll is kind of like your, meteorological snapshot, you know, it takes the radar yes. view of the country and shows you where things are going. Where by-elections more like a windsock. And mm. it tells you which way the wind's blowing, and a good meteorologist will be able to tell you, well, if the wind is coming from this direction at this time of year, this is probably what's going to happen. doesn't mean it will happen, but yeah. this is the yeah. way that you can expect. And I think you I have think, to take these, these, you have to take them, uh, look at them holistically. It doesn't help to look at what happened in a ward in Port St. John's and say, oh, the ANC lost 20 percentage points. You know, that means... They stuff, but I think you've got to like what's been <laughs> happening in KwaZulu Natal, where the ANC has been losing almost every single yeah. war has been going backwards significantly. Yeah, and 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 I think um, just before I come to you, Sarah, one of the things I'd like to add on that is that I think uh, the IFP in particular are actually kind of difficult. Their supporters tend to be the kind of difficult difficult to poll. Uh, 
um, in samples because they're often quite rural and they're the most likely to sort of be disconnected from from like databases of numbers and things like that. So I wouldn't, uh, and you can see this in that the IFP often polls at like two or three percent, and then they end up getting you know like four or five percent in an election, which is not a huge difference, but enough to make uh, a difference in KZN in particular. Um, so I think by-elections, when looking at the IFP, are actually particularly useful. Uh, Sara, what do you make of all this? Uh, how do you how do you read these by-elections? How do you how you read the general trends of by-elections recently? I, I think the limitation, as as you said, is basically you're looking at municipal elections for a candidate representing wards, whereas national it's it's in a way it's more a more complicated scenario than a national or provincial by-election. Uh, sorry, a provincial election because it's pure numbers, uh, or give or take, I don't know, there's complexity, but it's largely numbers. So it's very difficult, or perhaps a little unreliable to rely on the one for the other. You can you can just get a sense perhaps of trends of changes, et cetera, et cetera. In this, as you said, in the way that the IP has taken wards off the ANC, um, there may or may not be significance in the numbers, the percentages that the, uh, the parties go up by. But we've, you know, we're already seeing a way of diminishing the number of councillors by having an IFP councillor in Natal and an ACDP councillor in Natal gunned down, assassinated. I mean, let's put this simply. So, and and KwaZulu Natal is probably the world capital for for municipal councillor assassinations. Um, and I think it's going to that is probably going to get nastier just because the the, the stakes are so high. In the next election, I, th I think even even if gunning down someone doesn't actually provide or result in any particular benefit for the for the party behind the assassination, um, I you know I, I think the one the one IFP ANC election is by election as far as I know, IFP complained bitterly about uh, sort of finucre of the of the voting process. I don't know how how far they've gone with it, um, but I think we're going to see. A lot more ugly stuff, increasingly because the, because the ANC is going to be desperate not to be out of power. Um, it doesn't well, matter the, what position it has to establish. In the war that the PA won in Johannesburg, uh, the DA essentially accused the PA of fiddling with the process because the DA candidate met with Gaten McKenzie. Um, I think it was a week or something before the election was to take place, and then suddenly announced that actually he wasn't going to do it and he was standing down and. And then that he was moving to Cape Town, um, so they couldn't replace him, uh, and so the DA essentially were on the ballot with a candidate who had said that he wasn't going to be the councillor and would resign immediately. Uh, which I mean, you know, that, who knows that, what Gaten said to him, but it's not it's not a good look, is it? It's not a good look, and let's put it this way: the DA is not going to chase the man if he goes to Cape Town, but if perhaps if it were the ANC, I would immigrate. So anyway, um, don't keep a watch on. But uh, you know, in light of this, the, the sort of as as we can see, there's lots of churn going on in the in our politics, and the the question remains now: what are the opposition parties going to do when it comes to the 2024 election? No one's going to be able to form a majority, and even if the ANC does at the bottom end of what any poll has ever shown, like maybe 38 percent or something, absolute disaster for the ANC. Uh, they, it's still going to be difficult to form a coalition against them. So um, there is now, as part of the DA's uh, moonshot pack thing, they are talking about holding a national convention 
with a group of other parties. Uh, the Action SA is going to be there. Uh, who are they called? Uh, the Freedom Front Plus are going to be there. Uh, a number of other smaller parties, including the National Freedom Party, I think, which is very odd. Mm. Um, uh, and this convention is going to be, the IFP will be there, and the UIM will be there, and the SM, the SNP, Spectrum National Party, that I've never heard of, all going to be there. Probably some people from civil society. Marius, um, what do you, what do you, you think? How do you think this thing is going to shake out? Um, do you think that there's going to be a solid coalition block, kind of, I guess, laying off each other going into the next national election? The thing with our system, our proportional representation system, uh, is that it is pretty much a zero-sum thing. So if uh, somebody decides not to vote for the DA and rather vote for Action SA because, you know, the DA, they feel the DA didn't campaign hard enough against Action SA, whatever the case is, you know, that's, it's a loss for the DA. It's, we don't have a, a first-past-the-post constituency seats so where you, these kind of electoral packs would probably make more sense. I think uh, what's... Uh, an electoral pact with our system, as I said beforehand, doesn't really make all that sense. I think what uh, could make more sense is if uh, these parties, I mean, we, we obviously have to wait to see what comes out after uh, this national convention. So, you know, we we are we, we support four values, say, you know, non-racialism, the free markets, you know, whatever the case is, come up with things like opposed to what the ANC and EFF stands for. And we will try form a government after 2024 and we will come, you know, with proper... Uh, you know, binding agreements so we don't have these very um, chaotic coalitions we've had across municipalities in South Africa. So, but I think maybe it's also a way people can think, well, you know, I think they, they know if you vote for this party, it's going to be it's going to be against the ANC and the EFF, uh, if that's, you know, if that's the kind of parties you don't like. And, you know, you are voting for sort of free markets, people who support non-racialism, whatever the case is. Uh, so uh, it looks, looks pretty interesting. I'm not sure about people like the UIM being there who've got a handful of seats across the country and Spectrum National Party, I don't think he's got a seat anywhere. It's quite interesting. A National Freedom Party, the less said about them, the better, I think. But I see DP and uh, Musi Maimani's outfit to uh, build one South Africa are going to be there as observers. I was quite surprised that the ACDP wasn't there because they've always been a pretty solid member of anti-ANC coalitions across South Africa. Yeah, and They were part of that Cape Town uh, coalition in 2006. And they've always, you know, that they... I think they did vote for the ANC candidates in the last Joburg mayoral election. And uh, no, sorry for Tapelo Ahmad, the guy before Kabela Guamanda. But I think there were some, there were two guys who voted for, um, what's his name, Tapelo Ahmad. But I think there was something fishy, like the ACDP councillors had been bribed or something strange yeah. happened there. So, yeah, so generally, I mean, the ACDP is pretty much a solid member of any anti ANC coalition. So, but I think this does show how politics may be starting to coalesce around a certain. In a certain opposition block, and I think this does happen around around the world in countries where coalitions are common. You get two parties, you know, they're separate, they have completely separate identities, but you know, generally they're going to work together in coalition. They've got kind of broad goals, but they differ on certain issues. So I think this is maybe a sign of our politics maturing, but it's obviously something we're still going to have to keep an eye on. And I think it's yeah, I think it is quite exciting, and uh, we'll have to see if uh, more parties join. So I suspect that any. Thing they coalesce around will be far less coherent than what you just outlined, Morris. And I suspect it's <laughs> going to be we will not form a government with the ANC or EFF, something yeah. like that. Um, I think there'll be enough Mar for some people to vote for. That I mean, that that'd be good enough for a lot of people. I think. Yeah, 
Uh, Sara, what, what do you make of this? Do you think that this convention thing will sort of crystallize the, the battlefield, the electoral battlefield going forward? Um, I don't know. I think it's, 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 it's a bit up in the air, but I think the holding of it is important because it's a sign that in the chaos of the last few years at municipal level, I think the probably the, the, the opposition parties by and large have understood that they have to start to look a bit mature and uh, constructive. And uh, I think there's also an element of wanting to be seen to be at the convention so that you know, you're favorably looked upon as a, as a very small party. So what exactly will come out of it, I don't know. But I, I think it's part of, it is part of that maturing process and the realization that we cannot take for granted that the ANC will, will lose power and that they actually do have to pull themselves toward themselves to attract the votes that, that would make the difference. So let's call it a sort of, you know, growing up a bit on the, on the um, coalition issue. Right. Um, okay, let's uh, move just, on to our last story. Oh, yeah, just one ahead. thing I want to say that uh, I think South Africa also needs to start thinking about uh, looking around the world and seeing how coalitions have worked there. There's a kind of uh, Israel and uh, Ireland are doing it where they kind of a rotational premiership where parties that come into the coalition have turns being the head of government. And I think maybe that's something, you know, we should think about it. You know, maybe John Stianazen has a go for a year and a half to be president of South Africa, then Hebben Bashaba gets a go for a year and a half. You know, and uh, take turns doing that kind of thing. I think we need to start thinking out of the box, though, with these kind of things because that has seemed to be a bit of a sticking point often is about which positions go uh, to which parties. Sorting out egos may be a big thing. <laughs> Good luck to them with that one. <laughs> um, okay, let's move on to our last story. Um, and this is regarding uh, some investigative work done by the Amo Bungane uh, investigative group of journalists who were attempting to uh, publish a report based on some documents that were given to them by what they say is a whistleblower inside the Motti Group of companies. The Motti Group, um, upon hearing of this uh, attempt to sort of publish this report, got an ex parte application from the court, that is a, an application where you don't have to notify the other party, um, saying that the stuff can't be released, that the documents were obtained improperly and that nothing should be published regarding them. Uh, this was challenged by Amu Bungane in court uh, and uh, the, uh, the judge of the, the uh, high court has just ruled that um, the previous order was a gross abuse of the um, court system and that they should, you know, uh, never mind whether you should gag journalists in the first place, which he says is also a problem. But uh, you also, uh, the, the way that this court process was done was completely improper. Um, the judge uh, Sutherland said, quote, the elephant in this case is not press freedom or violation of privacy. Rather, it is the most egregious abuse of the process of court. It is manifest that the order granted on the 1st of June should never have been sought ex parte, still less granted. There is not a smidgen of justification for it being brought ex parte. Uh, Sara, what do you make of this story? Um, well, Roland Sutherland is a very measured sort of man. I mean, he, he I, I, I used to do a bit of work with him and, you know, not easily ruffled. So to get as angry as he did over this is quite something. Um, you know, the, the, the only thing he, he, he agreed to, he, he supported nothing. He said the, the, the demand by the Moti group that they undertake, to, that they be interdicted to preserve 
the original documentation, the is an undertaking I'm a Bogani had given anyway. So the fact that it's got it and that uh, it's going to publish and it meets all the requirements for uh, free speech and and uh, the publication of, of, of stuff that's in the interest of the media, that's met. If that's met, that, that, that's what they're allowed to do. So the, the getting an instinct to try and stop them from publishing uh, was, you know, you'd have to have very much better grounds than whatever grounds he, he seems to have had. Um, but the other thing is how, you know, ex parte applications are done. They, they're not common. They're done where the where the notification to the other side that runs the risk of somebody fleeing the country or killing somebody or whatever it may be. There must be some immediate real risk that something untoward will happen to the detriment of the applicant. Um, that doesn't happen often, but this is certainly not the sort of thing. I mean, Abu Bagani is a, is a reputable whether you like what they do or not as a as a company. They're a reputable group of people. They you know, they have they have credentials in the media and how they manage to get a single is either an incompetent judge or a bribe judge or an incompetent bribe judge. I don't know how they manage to do that. <laughs> Ireland was so irate about. Yeah, that, that that to me is what's kind of weird about all this, Morris. You know, it's the reasons for preventing the publication of something. You've got to especially when it's into sort of investigative work, you you gotta have a really good reason and it looks like here there really wasn't one. Um, and it's a little bit worrying to me. I'm glad that the high court, you know, basically gave this a slap. But it is a little bit worrying to me that the low courts did grant this. Um, Morris, do you have any thoughts before we close up the episode? No, no, I just, I mean, I agree with you. And it's obviously a way that people who don't want uh, their wrongdoing to be brought to light will go to courts. I mean, uh, President Zuma was pretty good with that, the so-called Stalingrad strategy. But uh, that's obviously not... Uh, uh, an option for most people who most people probably can't even afford uh, one day of an advocate in uh, one of the high courts, you know, the hundred thousand rand a day or whatever it is. So it's only people with basically, uh, you know, bottomless pockets who can do it. So somebody like Jacob Zuma, who's got access to the resources of the states to have been president of the country and former president and so on, can do it. But yeah, but it's, uh, at least this has happened. Hopefully, these kind of frivolous lawsuits or frivolous um, actions before the court won't be too common. Because I think maybe, especially like a small organization would maybe, and I think Amar Bungani is fairly well resourced, but small organizations would think twice maybe about uh, trying to report on something if they're worried about getting sued. You know, because a big, you know, if they, even if they win, but they don't get the costs awarded or whatever the case is, they can, what you owe the lawyers can probably sink a lot of organizations. That's the intention of yeah, no, that's that's obviously something we want to avoid. Anyway, um, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, there will be a Daily Friend wrap episode tomorrow coming out at 5 o'clock. So we'll see you then. And anyway, have a lovely day. Cheers, everyone.